worship with a reading from Hosea 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at that, the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my bow. For I will remove the names of the bowels from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? You guys, you guys survived. Like Mike said, that's wonderful. Glad you're here. Um, if you're a guest, welcome. My name's Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Um, today we wrap up an eight-week uh, series on the topic of marriage. I think we've all had it up to here with marriage uh, by this point. Um, and we're going to wrap it up today. And so it just it made, it came to me during prayer that I should, it now's my time to give the entire um, marriage ceremony scene from Princess Bride. So before we, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this Christmas tree on my head and we're just gonna go, Malwedge. So, just kidding. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't even know it. Um, I wanted to say, honestly, um, if you're single and you're here, I feel in some ways we've really done a horrible disservice to you. Um, so I just, if you're single, thank you for hanging out um, over this eight week. But you've been so patient with us, uh, married folk, as we work out our insecurities and blind spots. I'm sure you found some things interesting, some things not so interesting, but thank you. And, and literally everyone here, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for hanging. Uh, I know that it's been challenging <laughs> and encouraging, but very challenging. Um, and I, so I hope you found it encouraging and challenging. But more than that, if you're married, I hope over the past eight weeks, um, you've done more than just listen. Um, listening to talks about marriage is one thing. Um, actually changing the way you engage with your spouse is quite different. Um, and in some ways, this conversation has been very practical. It's what's made it so uncomfortable. Um, it's been very, very practical. Um, We've been dealing with our closest relationship in life, marriage. That's what it is. And it hits close to home for many of us. And, and for some of us, um, because it's caused us to have to deal with the reality of our lives, uh, because it's caused us to have to deal with the, the most real version of ourselves, um, we've been tempted to disconnect over the past eight weeks. Um, that's a reality, y'all. I get that. Um, this has been an uncomfortable conversation. Um, it's difficult to face sometimes what our marriage has become. And for many, many people, um, the dynamic of their marriage is a, is a topic of deep shame and regret and embarrassment. So if you've checked out over the past 
eight weeks, for whatever reason, if you're single, if you're just so discouraged about your marriage, you don't even see the point in trying anymore, I just, I want to invite you back into the conversation today. Uh, and I want to give a real quick overview of the main points we've talked about in the past two months. And then I want to flip the entire conversation on its head. Um, and I want to invite you back in and see that, yes, we've been talking about marriage, but we've really been talking about something else the whole time. And it applies to everyone in this room, married or not. So let me pray. We'll get after it. Jesus, we just ask you to make yourself known in this room. Father, we pray that your love would become real to some hearts today. Uh, that maybe for their entire Christian walk, your love has been an alien, aloof idea that has no real relevance in their life. God, today would you change that? Holy Spirit, would you pour out the love of God into our hearts? That we might rejoice in you, delight in you, that you would become in earnest the source of all life, the source of all of our joy, the source of all of our peace. So come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in this room. Amen. So let me just point out some of the main ideas that we've explored over the past eight weeks. Um, from the beginning, we're going to build on it, and then we're going to flip it, okay? From the beginning, we've said marriage is primarily a promise. The whole thing sits on commitment. It's a commitment to love. That's the bedrock. Uh, loyal love. It's a commitment to loyally love someone. Then we had to say, well, what's love? It's a trash drawer word in our society. We love tacos. We love snowboarding. Well, we had to define what are you actually committing to do? And we said, well, it's not a feeling. Feelings come and go. Um, if you're promising a feeling when you get married, that would be like promising to have a headache. Uh, no, that's not what we're committing to. That's not what we're promising to. It's a commitment to put their interest over your own in action not just in feeling. That's love. That's what you're promising, to act a certain way, not feel a certain way. <laughs> Feelings come and go, right? You're promising to love even when they are not lovely. And they're promising to love you even when you're not lovely. That's the foundation. We said it's not romance. It's not erotic. It's friendship. That's the foundation. And deep commitment. That's marriage. And it's something you have to choose. We said this. You have to choose it over and over again, like all the time. And if you quit choosing, you may have a ring on your finger, but you're not really doing marriage. You may be sharing your bed, but you're not sharing your heart. You have to choose over and over again. Stanley Hauerwas says, marriage is learning to love the stranger you find yourself married to. Which means choosing to love them today. As they are. This is what we've said. We went into great detail about this. We said marriage is a commitment and it is permanent. It's those things permanently, lasting. There's not meant to be a back door in marriage. It's a permanently choosing that person over and over for the long haul. In other words, it's not a three-year renewable contract <laughs> like some of us would like. It's a covenant of Permanence, y'all. It's forever language. I'm just reminding you of what we've said, right? We, at the vow, say, until death do us part. What's it getting at? Eternality, or at least as long as we can muster in this life. Until death rips us apart from one another, I'm going to act this way towards you. That's marriage. We said marriage, there's a deep oneness. You remember? A deep oneness in marriage. It's, it's a profound unity. Um, it's Promising to permanently choose to unite yourself to the other person. That, and we said that one flesh doesn't just mean sex. That's there. But physical sex 
is a symbol of a greater reality, right? Physical nakedness is a symbol of something else relationally. This is what we talked about. We talked about, we're talking about nakedness in, how, uh, in your emotions, in how you uh, talk with one another, full vulnerability in every way. That's what marriage is. That's what you're committing to. Financial vulnerability, social unity, emotional unity, all these things, fully known by the other person. In marriage, we said we are fully vulnerable. Just like in the garden, when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. In marriage, we said they see it all. In marriage, we said they get everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. They get our strengths, they get our nobilities, they get our demons, and they get our darkness. They get it all. That's marriage. And we said it's actually the vulnerability of marriage that gives it its remarkable power to transform. If you opt out of vulnerability, you opt out of its power. It is a transforming vulnerability. So it's a promise to permanently choose to unite yourself to that person with a vulnerability that transforms us. Just reviewing. This is what we've talked about. We went into great detail about all these things. We've said they get the same kind of access that you get over your body. That's why Paul uses the analogy of the body in Ephesians 5. It means, and this is what we said, your spouse will see and take part in cleaning off the dirt. I need to remind you of all these things since I'm about to flip all of this. It means that they see your impatience. They see your anger. They see your impulse buying. They see your coping mechanisms. And now they take part in helping you see it. Which is why many of us resent our spouse to this day for doing the thing the Bible says they're actually supposed to do. Help you shake off the dirt. Or as Tim Keller says, your spouse is a vehicle of redemption, y'all. They're a vehicle to help you uh, walk through the door of sanctification, right? Another way in which marriage has power um, is that your spouse has the ability to alter your very perspective of yourself. Does all this sound familiar? Are we, is this ringing bells? We said your spouse has amazing power in their words, so much so that they can just about override all past verdicts that have ever been passed on you. All past verdicts. So if the whole world throughout your growing up and your teachers and your parents have said you're a lazy bum, and then you get married and your spouse says you're not lazy, I see strength in you. They say, you work hard. People just, I know you. We believe our spouse. If our spouse says, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're gorgeous, it doesn't matter what the world says. We go out into the world thinking we're beautiful, strong, and gorgeous because they know us 24-7. They see it all. And so we trust them. Their words have remarkable power over this to shape us into a kind of person. It's just true. Of course, they, the, the reason marriage is so dicey is because that power uh, can also be used to break us, can, can it? It's used to shape us and it's used to break us. If everyone else in the world says, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're smart, and you come home and your spouse says, you're ugly, you're useless, you're stupid, it works that way too. 
But biblically, the mandates is they use that power to build you up, to edify you, right? To fortify, to call out the glory they see in you, to get excited about the image of God in you, that in the ways in which you reveal who God is to the world and to them, to cultivate that and to draw it out, right? Like a gardener draws out uh, vegetables from the garden, right? We call our spouse up to nobility, to honesty, to courage, to maturity. In other words, the Bible says, use the power you have to stoop beneath them. And lift them up. That's what we said about marriage. Now, all of that's just snippets, right? As we walk through Ephesians 5 and Genesis 1 through 2, we've, it's all been about marriage. And all of it's been about something else, too. We've really been having two conversations this entire time. See, this little sentence in Ephesians 5 flips the whole conversation on its head. And it's really, really remarkably and honestly scandalous in its own right. It is so out there. It is so very opposite of how we think of God, what we think our relationship with God is like. I honestly think we intellectually overlook it and maybe even ignore it. We ignore this biblical notion, uh, which, by the way, saturates the entire biblical narrative. Through the whole passage, what is it? It's giving all this instruction to spouses the whole time, and it's comparing the spouse with something else. Did you catch it? It's in Ephesians 5. It says, do this just like Christ does it for the church. Just like Christ does it for the church. Five to six times, depending on how you count it, it blurs marriage, your relationship between your husband and wife, with the relationship between Jesus and you. Five to six times. Ephesians 5.32 says this. After all this talk about flesh and cleansing and presenting perfect in one body, after all that talk, it says this. This is a profound mystery. And I'm saying it refers to Jesus and the church. All of that talk, y'all, about deep oneness, about intimacy, about submission, about vulnerability, about transforming power. We were really talking about how Jesus wants to engage you. In other words, marriage in its ideal form, marriage according to God, is an analogy, a shadow, a reflection of how God feels about you. The kind of love, the depth of love, the depth of vulnerability, the kind of relationship that God wants with you. He says it's like, it's like the relationship between a husband and a wife. Intimate, powerful, vulnerable. That's the kind of relationship God wants with us. That's how he wants to relate to you. Like a perfect spouse. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Flesh. This is a profound mystery. And I'm saying it talks about Christ in the church. What? All of this is about Jesus and his church, the unity, leaving, the leaving and cleaving, becoming one? It's, it's insane. We've not even really talked about this. We've been reading this over and over again and haven't even addressed this. The mystery that God is the ultimate spouse, that he is the ultimate lover and if we don't know that, then we'll try to make other relationships ultimate, like our spouse, like the relationship between our husband and wife. We try to make that ultimate, and it becomes an idol. But the whole passage, y'all, is really about Jesus' relationship to you. And we've not even touched on it. 
And if we don't pause and say, wait a second, we're totally, we'll, we'll miss it. I mean, we've been reading this every week for the past eight weeks, and I'm guessing some of us haven't even really thought about it. We've said, headship, what's that mean? Submission, what, gender roles, right? And ignore this whole dynamic that's clearly from beginning to end weaved within the whole passage. Marriage is simply, y'all, an arrow pointing to the kind of love God has for you. And it's scandalous. When we experience, what does it mean? When, he, when we experience the highs and lows of marriage, when we experience the affectionate embrace, please stay with me. When you experience the affectionate embrace of a loving spouse, it is God trying to get his arms around you. He's trying to communicate something to you. He's saying, this is a shadow a dim reflection of how I love you. And all we have to do is go back to the list to see what he means specifically. Married or not, single or divorced, God has made a commitment to you, a promise. He's promised to be faithful to you to the end. Hell or high water, sickness or health, rich or poor, he is committed to you. He's promised that, to covenant. You can refuse it. You can break faithfulness to him, but he has said, y'all, we're already checking out, I can tell. He said, you are the apple of my eye, and I love you with an everlasting love, not because you're lovely, because I've committed to you. Some of you are like, where does the Bible say he's the apple of my eye? Oh, glad you asked. Deuteronomy 32.10. Psalm 17.8. Go look it up. Zechariah 2.8. Three times in the Old Testament, God says, you are the apple of my eye. God tells his people, the one who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Zechariah 2.8. Go look it up. God has promised. <laughs> it's nice to do. God has promised to love you even when you're not lovely. He's not emotive and unpredictable in his love for you. He doesn't love you because he doesn't know you. <laughs> he knows you. God is never guilty of a blind love. That's, what, that's adolescent love, right? That's when the girl falls in love with the idiot boy and the mom's like, this is not gonna go well. Because you, do, you, need, to open, you need to open your eyes. He's an idiot, right? It's not how God loves you. He sees you in full view of every single sin you've ever done and loves you in, in, instead, in place, whatever, in spite. I'll calm down in a second. God is not guilty of a blind love. He sees he sees it all like Santa Claus, right? Like, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was poor taste. And he loves you still. God is not an infatuated teenager who doesn't realize that person's a total loser. He knows you to the depths, and he has committed to you still. Like your spouse, y'all, he knows. He knows you squeeze the toothpaste in the middle, right? He is fully aware of your mouth noise when you eat. And he knows your darkness and your demons, too more than you do, and he says, I want you still. I have committed to you still. We said in marriage, you have to choose them over and over again. John 15, 16 says this, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God has chosen, and today is still choosing you, signified by the words, if anyone is thirsty. Let him who has, if anyone who has ears, anyone, let him hear. 
signified by his arms nailed open on the cross. And then telling his disciples, now tell the whole world this news to the ends of the earth. He has chosen. God is today actively, wake up, God is today actively choosing you. And if you don't believe me, well, I guess it's an issue of faith, isn't it? He's actively, he is committed eternally. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll choose you unless someone better comes along. God is permanent in his love for you. He's not leaving options open. There's not a back door for God. It's no matter what, sickness or health, for richer or poor, except for God, not even death will do you part. Not even death will be able to separate you from his loyal love. He is, y'all, eternally committed to you. The question has always been, will you choose him? It's why throughout scripture, y'all, God uses the analogy of what? Adultery to describe when his people choose others. He doesn't describe it, it's not just sin in the Bible, it's not just moral failure. He says, it's like you've committed adultery against me. According to the Bible, you're not breaking the law, you're breaking his heart. Why else would he choose that image? You're not abandoning morality, you're abandoning a relationship. And if this is true, it changes everything. If this is true, it changes everything about what it means to be a Christian. It changes the motivation. We're not Christians so we get to go to heaven when we die, we're Christians because we get God. We love him. Y'all, it changes the goal. It changes the dynamic of obedience. We're not obedience so we get what we want. We're obedience because we want him. He is the apple of our eye. He is our pursuit. His face, his beauty, his excellence. It changes everything, y'all. And it's hiding in plain sight. So there's several really uncomfortable books in the Old Testament that laser in on the relationship between man and woman as an analogy for the relationship between God and humanity. One song of Solomon which I will let you explore on your own, okay? Like, I get in enough trouble up here, I'm not even gonna go there. Another is Hosea. God takes a prophet named Hosea and says, I want you to feel the dynamics, I want you to feel the depths that my heart feels towards my people. You, can, you got a Bible, you can go read it. We share um, how we feel with our friends, right? Like, if we're in a place where we like, feel comfortable, like we'll be vulnerable with people, I really feel this way. Well, God says to his friend Hosea, he says, I want you to, I, I wanna share with you how I feel about my people. He says, your life is going to paint a picture to all who read it. And this picture is how I feel towards my people. What's the picture? Well, it's of a husband who pursues and loves relentlessly a husband willing to pay a high price for his beloved. You got, a, you got the Bible? You can look at it. That's the picture. And is that woman, is the woman that he's pursuing is she the Proverbs 31 ideal wife? Is she beautiful? Is she worthy of love? Read the book. God says to Hosea, go marry a whore. And then you will know how I feel towards my people. And when you have kids, name one of them not my kid. Because he's probably not going to be yours. God says to Hosea, you're going to be faithful to her. And when she leaves you, which she will, when she betrays the covenant that she made with you, which she will, and goes and pursues other lovers and shares her body in bed with them, go out and find her. 
You be faithful. And Hosea does. He obeys. He goes and pursues. And guess where he finds her? On the selling block. Almost certainly being sold as a sex slave from those that she has pursued. So, so she pursued illicit sex outside of marriage, got in bed with other men, was exploited and used by them, taken captive by them, and then sold in the slavery market. And God says, yep, that's about right. Now go buy her. Go pay the price for her infidelity. Go buy her back from her lovers who exploited her and used her and be faithful to her again. Welcome to the world of the Bible. Vastly flies in the face of our cultural Christian understanding of what it means to be a Christian. This is not sweet and syrupy. It is visceral. It is deep. It is woven into the fibers of what it means to be human. God says, this is how I love you. I won't read it again. I have it up here, but we're going to, I'll just read the end because I want to deal with it just for a second. He says, I will, betroth, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. This thing that we read earlier, Michael read this ba'al, this word, it means master, Lord. God says in this passage in Hosea, Hosea he says, you know what? You're not going to call me master anymore. I want you to call me husband. I want you to call me lover. In this passage, he is saying, I am going to be your spouse. Married or not, God says, I am the ultimate spouse. I am the true lover of your soul. I am the one who truly completes you, and I will betroth you to me. That's what it means, English, Hebrew, betrothed. It's wedding. Hosea, God is clearly saying he wants you to know him as a lover, not simply a master or a lord. The phrase, y'all, in that day, which is in, in, in this passage earlier that Mike read, in that day is almost always a hyperlink that blurs the lines between the first and second coming of Jesus. You can go read it in the Old Testament. You'll see it in that day a lot. And it almost always is blurring the lines between, wait a second, is this when Jesus comes or is this when he comes a second time? And it's hinting, in this passage, it's hinting at the fact that the culmination of human existence is that you know God as the lover of your soul, that you love him for yourself. You can go read it. It's in the Bible. It's that you are united to him in deep love and trust. That is the desired outcome of existence as a final end. As a final end, yes, but it's also here and now. It means, single people, marriage is not the ultimate pleasure. It's not the ultimate completion. Knowing and loving God is. And the intimacy and pleasure of union with God 
starts today, can start today, right now, no matter what you've done, no matter what darkness you've given yourself to, no matter what selling block you find yourself on, no matter what lovers you've laid in, no matter what lover's arms you've laid in, right? That he's paid the price for your infidelity and that he loves you still and that God is the ultimate faithful spouse and he will be faithful to you even if you are faithless because he cannot deny himself. And we would then all have to say, well, if our relationship with God is like a marriage, then it's a broken marriage. But ideally, you see, God is saying, you know the deep oneness that we talked about? You know the deep oneness in marriage? I want that with you. Let's go back to our list. He's declared a covenant with you. He's chosen you permanently, and he wants deep unity with you. We said marriage is a deep unity and oneness, a clinging to our spouse. Remember, that's the whole one flesh. There's deep vulnerability, naked and unashamed, fully known, no secrets, nothing hidden. That's physical nakedness, no obstacles between you and them. Well, the New Testament has this idea called being in Christ. You ever read it? In Christ shows up in the NASB 89 times in the New Testament. In fact, in Colossians, it uses the same language of great mystery talking about Christ in us, the hope of glory. It means God wants a deep intimacy and vulnerability with you. Now, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable more than usual, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go beyond what the Bible says, all right? In Hosea, that word, know the Lord, that word is the same, oh, is the Hebrew word yada. It's the same word in Genesis 4 and throughout the Bible um, when Adam knew his wife and, had, and Eve had a baby. Same word. Now, I guess we should just open our Bibles to Song of Solomon and go from here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, before things get weird, let me tell you what it means, okay? Um, it means that the intimacy and pleasure of a union between a man and a woman in sex is an echo an analogy, a dim reflection pointing to the intimacy and pleasure of union with God. God wants a deep union with you, a deep intimacy, deep oneness, and deep joy and pleasure with you. Just like, and okay, if you're, off, if you're off, you're like, okay, this has gone off the rails, you know. Okay, okay, here we go. Let me just put more biblical language around it so you don't think I'm a heretic. Um, just like physical intimacy bears fruit, okay, a baby, so... Spiritual intimacy bears fruit. Every union bears fruit. When a woman puts herself in the arms of a lover, when she gives herself to him, when they are vulnerable and intimate, she bears fruit through her body into the world, a baby. Okay, that's fruit. Okay, likewise. When we ourselves, when we put ourselves into the arms of God, in vulnerability and intimacy, when we remove the obstacles and we have no secrets, when our souls are laid bare before him, we bear fruit through our body into the world. It's called the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Every union bears fruit. And if you put yourself into the arms of another lover, if you unite yourself to pride or money or greed, or power, when you love those things, when your soul is intimate with those things, it bears fruit in your life because every union bears fruit. Jesus said you judge a tree by its fruit. Hmm? There is physical union and there is spiritual union. 
sex is an analogy. And we're only scratching the surface. <laughs> Naked and unashamed means total vulnerability. And God leads the way, y'all, in total vulnerability. How can God be vulnerable? He's God. All you have to do is look at Christmas, brother, sister, in which God makes himself as vulnerable as a baby. He moved towards you in vulnerability. He pursued you in vulnerability. He initiated reconciliation by humbling himself and sacrificing himself. Remember the two things that are always necessary for any relationship to be reconciled, humility and sacrifice? That's what Jesus did. He initiated. Just like when we get in conflict with our spouse, spouse someone has to initiate. Someone has to humble themselves. Someone has to reach out. The gospel says God did. Right? Humility and self-sacrifice. He was... Jesus was stripped completely naked. Like an exposed nerve, he had no protection. Total vulnerability. God was totally vulnerable with us. Completely exposed on the cross. You know the images of jewelry of Jesus, of the crucifix, where there's a loincloth on Jesus? Uh, that is not, that's not true. It wasn't there. He had no such dignities. No such protection. He was fully vulnerable with humanity. He pursued us in complete vulnerability, and we crucified him for it. And his words from the cross were what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. We said marriage has profound power because the deep unity and vulnerability of marriage. Spouses have the power to rewire our perspective of ourselves. They carry that. That's what we said. That's why I reminded you of it, right? They say you're beautiful. The whole world says, right, okay. So when we are vulnerable with God, when we commit ourselves to him in love and trust, his word begins to have power. The Holy Spirit lights up his word. He begins to rewire your perspective of yourself from sinner to saint, from orphan to son or daughter. Just like we said, our spouse can overturn all past verdicts passed on us. So much more, in a much more real way, Jesus can overturn every past verdict that's been pronounced over your life. Or as in Colossians says, he canceled the record of debt against you, nailing it to the cross. In other words, the law pronounces you guilty. Jesus pronounces you forgiven, restored, redeemed, loved. Or the whole world can say you're an orphan, you're alone, no one loves you. God, when we put ourselves in his arms, says, I put orphans in families. I've adopted you. You are my daughter you're my son, and though you feel alone, you're never alone. I am with you to the end of the age. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even death or life or angels or demons, nor things present nor things past will ever separate you from the love of Christ. See, if we're not vulnerable with the Lord, those words ring shallow in our ears. But when we are vulnerable with God, when we bear the reality of our hearts before him, all of a sudden, the power to transform begins to kick in, right? When, he, when we let him in to see the reality of our life, that's when the transforming power of the cross can begin to engage us. God has to transform the real you, not some pretend version of you. And only when we let him into the real us can the sanctifying power of the cross begin to have effect. It's all there, y'all. It's all there. Almost everything we said about marriage, the commitment, the unity, the transforming power, the cleansing, the vulnerability, it's all meant to show you that cosmically, God is the ultimate husband and we are his bride. Sorry, boys. 
And you see now why Paul is so willing to overlap marriage in the gospel in Ephesians 5. You read it and the lines are blurred. Is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about husbands? Is he talking about wives? Or You see, if you don't understand the gospel, you won't understand marriage. And this is where we're going to land the plane. And vice versa, each illuminates the other. This is what I mean. <clears throat> the mystery and union with spouse, right, is like the mystery and union with God. It means this. It means this. It's messy. <laughs> it's complicated. It's full of strife and struggle. Salvation is messy. <laughs> it's complete. The gospel is full of blood and sweat and tears. It's our highest victories and our lowest defeat. And so is marriage. It's glorious and humiliating. The gospel or marriage, yes. It lifts you to the heavens and it grinds you into the dirt. Which one? Yes. <laughs> it cleanses you. It confronts you. It's passion and love. It's not Hallmark card. It's not sweet and syrupy. It's visceral. It's deep. It's intertwined with the fibers of our being. It's what it means to be human. What am I talking about? The gospel or marriage? Yes. <laughs> both. They both transform. Ephesians 5 is saying they're echoes of one another. The reality is if we miss the gospel, we will eventually miss our marriage. And this is what I mean. Only in the gospel can we learn what it means, what it feels like to be loved outside of our performance. Only in the gospel can we learn what it means to receive forgiveness. Only in the gospel can we learn what it means to be totally vulnerable before another. Learn how to forgive. If we don't learn how to live out the gospel, we will eventually lose our marriage. Because marriage will only win when it is a reverberation of the gospel over and over and over again. It's the only way it works. And this is why, I don't care, I don't care who you are, it's the only way marriage works. Because why? What's marriage? Is it love and bliss and harmony and romance? No, it's offense and hurt and wounds and outrage and alienation and estrangement. And your marriage will only make it if you know how to extend grace and repent for your wrongs, and receive unmerited grace. It just won't work if you can't do that. Because what's the gospel? It's union. It's naked and unashamed. It's all there, right? It, there's, the gospel is sin and alienation. The gospel is choosing to love, God choosing us, humbling ourselves. It's self-sacrifice, and it's over and over and over again. And your marriage is going to repeat that pattern in small ways, maybe a dozen times a day, in larger ways, maybe a once a month, and maybe one massively catastrophic way for your whole marriage in which the gospel, unless the gospel plays itself out, you're going to fall apart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Every marriage is going to have tests like this. And if we can't live the gospel out in our marriage, the, the gears are going to rust and, and just you're going to, it's not going to make it. There might be a massive, horrible incident one time in your marriage where you will have to dig remarkably deep into the gospel to extend grace and mercy. You might be there right now. I'll tell you, even if you're not there right now, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, dozens of times a day, we have to rely on the gospel to keep our marriages healthy. And if it, if it ceases to echo the gospel, then your marriage ceases to exist, right? The gears will lock up. The gridlock in your marriage, in other words, is not really about their annoying habits or about their selfishness. That's there. But the gridlock in your marriage is really about a misunderstanding of the gospel. Solution is always the gospel. It's always forgiveness, y'all. It's always forgiveness. The solution in your marriage is always one person absorbing the sin. One person saying, you don't owe me anymore. That's always the solution. There's no other way out. 
One person has to reach out in humility and self-sacrifice. And to be sure we get the analogy, what does the Bible end with in the Revelation? It's a marriage ceremony, a feast. And who's getting married? Well, the church, the bride of Christ, is presented to Jesus in a righteousness that was purchased for them by his blood. It's Hosea. The Bible ends with God purchasing his bride. The Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a marriage between God and his people. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. God, what an image. Crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And if we miss this, we miss everything. So in closing, if all this is true, if God wants us to experience marriage as something that points us to himself, think about it. It makes sense, y'all, then, this is where we're ending now, that one of the primary targets for the enemy is marriage. He needs your marriage to be horrible. More so than any other thing, the enemy wants to destroy your marriage. And at the beginning of this, y'all, some of you were very honest and wrote down some, some of your challenges. You guys remember that with your marriage? And I read every single one of those. Some of them were so relatable. Some of them broke my heart because I could feel the desperation and the frustration. I could feel how exhausted some of us were with our marriage. And of course, y'all, the enemy needs your marriage to be horrible. So when the Bible says God loves you like a spouse, his love for you is like that of a spouse, we say, well, that didn't work out. When the, when the Bible says God's the ultimate spouse and he wants, we think, well, my last marriage was horrible. Why should my marriage to God be any better? And the enemy wants to take the wind out of the analogy. Because if we truly understood it, it would radically change our lives. There's no way you could be the same if you believed and understood that God loved you with the passion that we know in marriage, with the kind of pursuit and passion that we experience in marriage. So brothers and sisters, as our conversation on marriage comes to an end, above all things, above all relationships, above all hobbies, above all work, above all other pursuits, above the parent and child relationship, above your relationship with every, everything else except God, guard your marriage. Because just like your heart, out of it flows your life. So if you're here today, married or not, single, divorced, betrayed, whatever, broken, and you've never known the love of God like what was described, if you feel on the outside looking into that entire analogy, I think God wants to meet you today. If you are the kind of person who just can't bring yourself to believe that God has promised you, he's chosen you permanently, he loves you, he wants to be vulnerable with you, he wants a deep unity with you. If you feel like, well, that's a wonderful pipe dream, but it's not reality. But maybe you're here today and you would like to believe that you're loved like that. I want to invite you to come forward after we have communion and let someone pray for you. Because I think God wants to meet you today, no matter whose arms you've laid in.
no matter what darkness you've led in, no matter what selling block you find yourself on, God wants to show you today the love of his transform, the power of his transforming love. Let me pray for us.